0: Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm with my new friend, but someone whose work I've admired for a long time, Mauro Porto. Is that nice okay, to be here. Is that yeah, okay? pronunciation? Perfect pronunciation. That will do. <laughs> um, Mauro, we're here in New Orleans, in Tulane, where you are chair of the Department of Communication. Yes, that's correct. Very important man. Recently? Uh, <laughs> Recently important. taken this position. Oh, important in many ways and in many areas. We'll get onto to that, but right now Let's talk about the research you're currently doing and have planned and so on which connects to some of my own interests in fact So could you yeah, tell us a right bit
1: now, about that? right now I'm opening this new area of inquiry, which mm. is um, I have a co-author in Brazil, João Branche, who is a mm-hmm. well-known political activist civil mm. society leader but also he's a PhD student now at USP, the University yeah. of Sao Paulo. Uh, we have developed a project about the role of social media in the 2013 protests in right. Brazil.
0: Which are maybe a million people involved in Oh
1: yeah, more than… Yeah, more if you than look that. nationally, uh, yeah, in the climax of the wave of protests in June 20, uh, 2013, mm. there were Uh, You know, conservative estimates think uh, they give the number of 1.5 million people in more than than 100 cities that very day. That was the climax.
0: Yeah, Uh, right. And that's what you're working on. Yes. Now, the way that was represented in the materials that I read was that it was about corruption and the misdirection of funds in the name of... Rebuilding some of the cities for the 2014 Men's Football World Cup and the 2016 Summer Olympics.
1: Yes, so one of the key uh, themes of our research is to look to, to give a more critical look at the ways that social media deliberation impact protest mm. movements agendas. Mm-hmm. So one thing that we argue in this paper is um that the the war the more the protest movement advanced mm-hmm. grew in scope and strength the more fragmented its agenda became mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we argue that ha- that has to do partially with the role of social media and let me explain mm-hmm. so the first protests in the beginning of mm-hmm. june were highly centered on the issue of the increase in public transportation fares, especially in the cities, uh, in the main metropolitan areas, and especially in Sao Paulo. Mm. So the the first demonstrations mm. was, were called by a social movement called MPL, the Movement for the Free Pass, that were demanding. And they were opposing a small rise, a relatively small rise in the bus fares in the main metropolitan areas. But there was also a significant dissatisfaction with brazil's decision to host uh, the 2014 world cup and other uh, sports mega events including the olympics in 16. so in june 2013 there was a first preliminary soccer tournament in brazil which was the confederations cup right so that gave impetus to some groups to protest human rights violations related to the world cup especially in, in in what In relation to how entire neighborhoods were being removed to the building of these mega construction works and mostly uh, neighborhoods inhabited by poor uh, marginalized uh, communities Mm -hmm. so that was the initial impetus however uh, the more the movement grew in scope and strength more fragmented that agenda became and then the movement started to focus more and more on general demands for better and more education, better and more health, and also there was strong populist calls for the end of corruption. Hmm. Uh, and we argued that was more related to a uh, middle-class sensibility, uh, because the survey data shows that most prote- the protesters were younger more affluent and better educated than the general population right so we argue that there were interesting ways where the agenda of the street demonstrations were reflected but also uh, significantly changed by these uh, new actors um, and also it's important to note that even the MPL the, the social movement that they called the first demonstrations when you know the agenda was radically changed um, uh to incorporate these new themes uh and there was a growing antagonism against political parties of the left in the demonstrations um, uh the MPL withdrew uh from the movement and said they would not call any new demonstrations so that for, that's an indication of the of the shift and of course New groups that were much more uh, skillful in using social media uh, strategies, including the use of hashtags and uh, and other means, they were much more successful in setting the agenda of the street demonstrations mm-hmm. and of the protests. So we argue that the, the, the paradox in Brazil is that the more the movement grew in strength and, and more it grew in scope, the more fragmented the agenda became, and more distanced, it became from a human rights um,
0: agenda. Wow. So it was captured by the young emergent middle class.
1: Yeah. Well, there are two components here, the traditional middle class groups in Brazil, but also this new emerging uh, so-called new middle class, because uh, with, with the Workers' Party administration, since Lula ra- rises mm-hmm. to the presidency mm-hmm. in 2003, Brazil has witnessed a significant uh, decrease in levels of social inequality and poverty. Right, right. So millions of Brazilians rise from out of poverty yeah. to a, a low middle class standards. So there is indication that these new groups did participate in the demonstrations. However, the protagonism ended up in the hands of traditional more affluent uh middle and upper classes mm. that were not necessarily very happy with the, the redistribution with the redistribution
0: of income so, so in and power. Some of this was anti-leftist.
1: Oh sure. So the, the mm. demonstrations were able to capitalize and uh and attract mm. a huge dissatisfaction uh against uh the PT and its yeah. Uh,
0: administration. Yeah, the Workers' Party of yes. Lula. And I understand that Romario was quite involved in this in interesting ways, right? So,
1: Yeah, he has been a
0: vocal. He's
1: now in, uh, a, in the a member of parliament. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but he's more of a local, regional leadership in the state of Rio de Janeiro. He's not really an... Came to play a significant role nationally. Oh, he didn't.
0: So Romario was a footballer who won the World Cup with Brazil, and was originally an advocate for the World Cup coming to Brazil, and then changed his tune. But he's a strong critic and
1: opponent of the bureaucracy of CBF, the Brazilian Confederation of Soccer. So, and he has been very vocal against. CBF and its mm. bureaucracy. Okay, okay,
0: but not a significant figure nationally.
1: In that regard, yes, but not in regard to right, the protests. To the protests. Yeah. Okay,
0: okay. Yeah. And as far as the role of social media is concerned mm-hmm. in these protests, I'm still trying to work out what anti-social media are, but mm-hmm. anyway, what what has been the role of a social media? So we, if you look uh, at
1: some research done in several different contexts, uh, It's true that it's became particularly evident with all these waves of demonstrations around the world, Mm. in Spain, in the Middle East, uh, in Turkey, and uh, in Mexico, in so many places. It became clear that, you know, uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, they do have this ability of aggregating uh, online publics in very effective and low-cost ways Mm -hmm. And 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 calling and organizing protests in unprecedented ways. Mm. So this is clear. However, less research has been done on some paradoxical effects of mm-hmm. m- social media mobilization. We argue that less attention has been given to uh, what kinds of political subjectivities mm. characterize. These protests, because one thing is the ability to put a lot of people in the streets; another thing, different thing, is uh, the ability of political forces to build political subjectivities and identities in a way that generate more sustainable movements. Mm. So, in one, that's why we. I wouldn't be surprised by the outcome of the so-called Arab Spring in Egypt uh, with the collapse. Of uh, of of the government and the and the coup that happened against the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, or, or the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood appeared right after the collapse mm. of the Mubarak regime as the only political alternative, or that you know that that the the 2013 protests in Brazil at the end did not cause any significant major shift mm-hmm. in politics mm-hmm. because at the end it depends on the articulation of more organic um, alternatives so in this research that i'm developing with my colleague Jean branch we are very uh, critical of we try to develop a critical approach to social media that points to these paradoxes and these mm-hmm. contradictions and that what happens a lot what well, in the case of Brazil, at least, what yeah. happened is there was a dynamic in social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, mm-hmm. where younger and more affluent users mm-hmm. uh, were really um, deploying social media um, in strategies of um, uh, what would be the best way to say to, to reinforce. Uh, their s- strategies of self-presentation mm-hmm. so when people post mm-hmm. a, do a, put a posting in Facebook or send out a Twitter, the key expectations is that they will be able to attract the highest number possible of likes of comments, of shares, or retweets right? And some research done in other contexts, especially in the US where this, there is more data about these things, suggests that uh, you know uh, people tend not to Engage a lot of online discussions when the topic is controversial, mm. highly controversial, or when, uh, uh, or when the, the 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 there is less possibility to get confirmatory confirmatory feedback from peers, mm. right? So there is a study by the Pew Research Center in the U.S. Mm about the NSA Snowden Affair.
0: National Security Agency. Yeah, the
1: National Security Agency and all the spying and all that. Which is not supposed to be done on US citizens. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, but that study showed very interesting ways that mm. the settings where Americans were less willing to discuss mm. that affair was in Facebook and Twitter. They were mm. much more willing to discuss that with friends and family mm. and other mm. offline contacts than they were online. Mm. And on the, on the other hand, the more people posted on Facebook and mm. the more they liked mm. stuff in Facebook, mm. the more they thought that the opinion, their opinion was shared, broadly shared by uh, others, mm-hmm. right? Mm. So we think that similar dynamics can be, even though we don't have similar research or data mm. about mm. the 2013 mm. protests, we argue in this research that there is a similar dynamics in relation to Brazil, that um, you know, posts, posts and tweets about human rights violations uh, related to mega events, sport mega events like the World Cup, they were less likely to attract confirmatory feedback from middle and upper class publics than a post about more education or less corruption or, or other issues mm. right mm. and also we find out and there is another thing that we argue in the paper is that if you look at public opinions data it, there are interesting results for example if you look at public health public mm. health in brazil which is there is a system called the the, the public health system is called sus s-u-s and the, the brazil the portuguese acronym uh it's poorly evaluated by Brazilians, right? It's definitely a system full of problems and deficiencies. Mm. However, what public opinion data shows that the higher the levels of income, mm-hmm. uh, education, mm. the worse the evaluation right. of the public health system. In other words, people who not, do not need it or do use, use it, it are the ones evaluated more poorly. Right. And in fact, this survey we looked at show that on the contrary the more that people used actually used the system the better the evaluation the more they liked it so for us you know this agenda focusing on better health mm-hmm. better education less corruption mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. to had to do more with a middle upper class sensibility mm-hmm. than with the original human rights based agenda mm-hmm. of the social movements yeah. that
0: called the first protests wow it's really really interesting yeah. And is this paper, Joao, your co-author, mm-hmm. available?
1: Yes, it's coming out in a edited book right. uh, that Linda is organized uh, organizing.
0: Uh, Lina.
1: Um, oh, Lina Genchi. Yes.
0: Who is another victim of the podcast? Yes, at uh, so University of Cardiff,
1: can, I highly recommend her. Yeah, so her she,
0: work is great. We were yeah. gossiping about how good her work is only yeah. the other day. So she's editing a, edit a book
1: yeah. on uh, social movements and political right. protest, and uh, we are we're going to be part of it. That's very wonderful. happy to be part of. And it. And are you
0: going to be doing more research together of this kind? Yes.
1: Yeah, so I now I'm in that uh, period where you're trying to figure out and what's next, what's the next big project? And I don't
0: know yet uh, what's the next big project. I'm gonna have to try to inveigle you into this thing I'm trying to do. I was telling you about lunch yesterday. Yes. So, um, prior to that research, or perhaps during it, I don't know, Mm -hmm. you actually went back to live in Brazil for some time. And could you tell us a bit about what you were doing there?
1: Yeah, I had an interesting experience, which was to use a very different hat from my scholar Mm -hmm. or researcher. So in two thousand and ten I was invited to to by the Ford Foundation in Brazil. So oh. Ford uh the Ford Foundation is this philanthropic foundation that works for social justice, democracy, and human rights around the world. But yes. in the
0: seventies we all thought that it was part of cultural imperialism. Oh now, sure. Now we don't. Yeah. So <laughs> it depends. Depends uh, on <laughs> who looks
1: at it. But the fact of the matter is that Ford has been in Brazil, they have 10 offices around the world, they have been in Brazil for more than 50 years, uh, and they were opening a new initiative on mm. media and freedom of expression. It's basically, it was an attempt to support civil society groups and academic groups that were struggling to democratize the media in Brazil mm. and ensure people's access to new technologies right. like the internet. So they were hiring a new program officer that's the title of the position for you know what they call media advancing media rights and access Mm -hmm. so i applied to that and i was fortunate enough to be selected so starting in january 2011 Mm -hmm. uh, i left tulane i got a leave uh, from tulane and i went to work in rio uh, for two years and a half Mm. leading a portfolio of grants Mm-hmm. uh related to uh media access um,
0: mm.
1: and democratization in brazil so that 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 was an entirely different experience and a fascinating one mm. and, and and i learned uh, it, it was one thing is our ability as researchers to interview actors and uh, do field research and get a good sense of their struggles and uh, mm. and activism. Another thing is to work with them, you know, in a day-to-day basis, trying to figure out the strategies and understanding more deeply their um, dilemmas and difficulties, but also uh, their having a better sense of their achievements. So it was really a privilege for mm. two years and a half to work on a day-to-day basis with people who were really at the front lines of social change in Brazil, mm. uh, organizations Struggling for a more democratic legal framework for the communication sector, Mm. Uh, uh, women's groups uh, struggling uh, to end derogatory representations of women and Mm -hmm. other stigmatized groups, uh, uh, working with uh, organizations of the black movement in Brazil to improve the way that um, improve access uh, of uh, Afro-Brazilians to uh, uh, media and technology, so it was a really uh, a fascinating period, and I learned so much about Brazilian politics and Brazilian media uh, and civil society in that period.
0: Yeah. And were groups like Oludoon and Afro-Reggae involved with Ford at all? Yes,
1: so they, these are some of the Afro-Brazilian groups that have historically been supported by ford but uh, ford in brazil had besides this media rights and access initiative yeah there were three three other initiatives there was a human rights initiative where most mm. of these groups fighting against racial discrimination are funded by yeah. their human rights initiative there is also an initiative about wow. uh, <clears throat> um uh sustainable development Mm -hmm. and right to to land by uh, marginalized groups Mm -hmm. including not only indigenous peoples but uh, quilombos and extractivists in the amazon so that's another initiative Um, so there are different and there is also an initiative specific initiative on uh, fighting for racial justice so Mm -hmm. I was in charge mostly of funding the the media stuff, groups that working on communication and freedom of expression issues. So we did fund a number of groups that were related to issues of racial justice and media. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example Ford launched, uh, supported the Mm -hmm. launching of a very interesting award, which was the Abidias Nascimento Award for the best news coverage related to Afro-Brazilians. Uh, the We supported uh, news monitoring of mm. racial representations in the mainstream media, so there were a lot of initiatives related to women 's rights race ethnicity uh, mm. media democratization media reform uh, yeah. so it was it was a diverse portfolio
0: yeah and did you find state actors were sympathetic and were and proprietors were sympathetic?
1: yeah one of the things that you learn when you have that chance of working on a daily basis of this with this social movements and civil society actors is to understand that the state is never uh homogeneous it's never actor. one thing it's not it's the never state. it's not a state it's yeah. a, it's a sect, a set of often contradictory forces yeah. Uh, yeah. so there was always you know in brazil unfortunately at the time that that I was working on issues of media democratization Mm -hmm. for example the Minister of Communication was never a significant ally of forces trying to advance freedom of expression and uh... but however you know other uh, actors of the state were Mm -hmm. very engaged in uh, trying to advance that agenda including the Minister of Justice the Minister of Justice there was of course the secretary for women's rights mm-hmm. the secretary for uh racial justice so and there is also the human rights secretary so there were uh, so the state was you know some uh, of the bureaucratic agencies of the state were much more supportive of a media reform
0: agenda than others yeah. and what about our friends at global and other big media conglomerates yeah, what was well, their attitude
1: we uh, you know as as a private foundation that was interested in advancing freedom of expression Mm. and media pluralism, Mm. uh, there were certainly clear ways where our work was very critical of the state of the media system in Brazil, Mm. especially in terms of its high levels of concentration uh, and lack of diversity and pluralism. On the other hand, we tried to support initiatives that... um, could open more space yeah. in the mainstream media yeah. and then in the main groups, media groups. So the whole idea of having an award to recognize the best news coverage about uh, Afro-Brazilians yeah. was an attempt to show that there is good stuff yeah. being covered. We just need to open more room for that. Mm. Uh, and also in the case of uh, the global organizations, they have... Uh, They also have a private foundation that's the Roberto Marinho Foundation. And uh, one of their projects is uh, what we would say one of the best public channels and cable, which is the Canal Futura. So we had a partnership with Futura to develop what they call a form of network journalism which was extremely interesting because they were building partnership with civil society organizations all over the country and with universities Mm. to have them as co-producers of content to this public
0: cable channel. So that was an example of a very interesting project. And there Uh, is also, what they call forgive my pronunciation, Global Universidad, right?
1: That was part, it worked more effectively in some periods than others, but that was an attempt... Uh, by the global corporation to improve its relations uh, with the universities, with the universities and higher education in Brazil. Yeah, so the in some of its aspects is more controversial, but it's definitely uh, an attempt to improve uh, and overcome a history of you know uh, you know antagonism between the academic field and and global in some ways and. Uh, for example, they, in, I wrote a book about TV Global uh, that was published in 2012, and Global, through Global Universidade and other channels, facilitated access in, in ways that did not exist before Global
0: Universidade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, perhaps it would be a good time now to move on to some mm-hmm. of that research, right? Mm-hmm. Because. Uh, you have a fascinating background, but in the last few years, it's a lot of it's been scholarly, mm-hmm. and a lot of it focused on Latin America, particularly mm-hmm. Brazil and the media. So perhaps you could just take us through that and point us to, again to where people might be able to find this work, Yeah, in so particular this,
1: this wonderful new book. My <laughs> last major research project was a book on the role of TV Globo, Brazil's dominant media group in Brazilian politics since the return of democracy in 1985. Mm -hmm. So it's a book that covers uh, 20 years, Uh, it covers from 1985 when, with the return of democracy and the end of the military dictatorship to 2006, which and, covers... And
0: we might just fill in people. So there was a mm-hmm. dictatorship from 64 to 85, mm-hmm. and then there was the coup within a coup, the dictatorship within the dictatorship, which is from 68, 68. Yes. Which is a bigger crackdown. Yeah, there, there was crackdown.
1: a definitely closing of a brutal... Then it starts a brutal period of repression. and uh, uh, So, yes, so we had almost... 21 years of a military dictatorship from 64 to 85
0: and backed by the United States Oh sure and seen as an opposition to Marxism as part of both Cold War one and Cold War two. Exactly. Yeah, so in
1: 1985 we have a transition to democracy So I looked at what was the role of TV global in Brazilian politics Mm -hmm. from 85 to 2006 so this book is based on interviews with main major political actors, so mm-hmm. I interviewed all the former presidents oh. of Brazil, oh. starting with Sarney, uh, Colour de Melo, mm-hmm. Itamar Franco, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, I also interviewed uh, several of their press secretaries. Um, um, so there was interviews with political actors, and also interviews with journalists who were part of TV Globo, had worked at TV Globo mm. so, and also there is a chapter on civil society and media in Brazil where I interviewed a lot several civil society leaders and also it's based on content analysis of news and also textual analysis of telenovelas, the famous uh, television series that are extremely popular in Brazil. So I looked at their political role.
0: And not only in Brazil, Global oh, sure. exports these things all over the world. Yeah,
1: so uh, Latin American media companies like Globo in Brazil and Televisa in Mexico are major exporters mm. of telenovelas, and they are. Yeah, you're right; they are global phenomenon. Uh, but so that that well, making a long story short, one of the key arguments of the the book is that uh, Global has been had been characterized, as you pointed out, to a very conservative uh, political agenda. They had supported the 1964, the the TV did not exist in 64, but the Globo comes from a media group that started with the newspaper, U Globo, that was owned by Roberto Marinho. the Marinho and his newspaper were one of the media groups that supported the 1964 military coup. Mm-hmm. And also, in, during the period of the military dictatorship from 64 to 85, mm-hmm. there was a clear collusion of interests between yeah. global and the military. Uh, and, uh, and Marinho used his media empire to advance his political agenda very clearly. And that continued in the first period of the the redemocratization
0: mm-hmm.
1: but what I argue in the book is that global started to change a lot in sig- very significant ways in the mid-90s mm-hmm. there was a major shift in its news division uh, they brought in a journalist from the newspaper that had never done television before to be the head of its news division they replaced news readers by journalists in, in its main newscast the Jornal Nacional so there, so my main qu- and 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 in significant ways, Global changed its journalism um, model, uh, becoming less submissive to the governmental agenda, mm. um, more assertive uh, compared to what it had been before, uh, less biased in significant ways. So my question was: Why did Global change, uh, yeah. and what were the consequences of that? And the book argues that the the, consolid, the advancement of uh, the representative democracy in Brazil, the, the deepening of democracy in Brazil, shifted the context in significant ways and forced mm-hmm. media conglomerates like Globo to change and adapt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the book is an analysis of the dynamics between democratization on one side and media opening or media change on the other, and how they affect each other. So that was one of the themes.
0: Right.
1: And part of the new context that I look at mm. is that you know that has been less studied is the fact that what was what started to happen in the mid-90s is the rise and the strengthening of civil society groups that were devoted to media monitoring and media democratization. Mm. So, uh, starting in the mid-90s, Global knew that its news uh, and entertainment shows were being monitored by all kinds of groups and uh, that were trying to hold it accountable uh, in significant ways for, you know, our kinds of uh, possible issues in terms mm-hmm. of representation of stigmatized groups and so the book looks at the role of civil society in creating this context that forced
0: powerful conglomerates like Global to change and adapt. It's worth pointing out that Latin America didn't have a tradition really of public broadcasting in general yeah. in the way that the Asia-Pacific did Northern Europe Western Europe did, to a much lesser extent the United States Yes. and so funnily enough given the importance of a state in so many enterprises directly in Latin America it had a more indirect but very powerful influence that was very hands on in many cases yes. over the bourgeois media yes. and uh, corporations were in lockstep with it and concessions were made both ways to create handy relationships, both in authoritarian democracies like Mexico and in direct dictatorships like mm-hmm. Brazil.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you're absolutely right. Latin America does not have a, a tradition of public service broadcasting, with the main exception uh, is Chile, yeah. where early on there was an interesting model where television uh, channels and networks were... Um, neither private nor state control; They were controlled by the universities. Yeah. That system was destroyed, of course, by the Pinochet dictatorship. But even nowadays, uh, TVN is a significant public channel yeah. that is able to attract uh, significant large audiences even though it, it has also been affected by neoliberal policies and private. And
0: and to a certain extent, university TV stations were important in other countries as well, but not as significant as that. Yeah,
1: so with the exception of Chile, there is no strong tradition of public broadcasting. What is often called public stations and public networks in Latin America are often state-controlled stations. And Lula, uh, the Workers' Party president who governed Brazil from 2003, to 2010, he tried to strengthen the so-called public media system, yeah. he, uh, but it did not come to a point of ensuring uh, neither financial autonomy nor administrative autonomy from the federal government. So uh, it's still a system that uh, lacks the institutional arrangements that would assure its autonomy from the federal government. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that there, there, are, there isn't a strong public sector in the media mm-hmm. system, which is a, of
0: obviously a problem. But it also makes very complicated the relationship of something like global to the public interest. Yeah. In the same way as it's a very difficult for people to understand the private-public partnerships that Ford, in many ways, inaugurated around the world, it's very hard for people to understand how they work, and to see that they are not just tools of U.S. imperialism or the state. Uh, Very hard for people in other countries to get this. So it's hard for people in other countries to understand the relationship between governments and private sector broadcasters in Latin America.
1: Yeah, exactly. But what's interesting here is that we are witnessing... New shifts and accommodations and mm. the relationship mm. between governments and the private media sector right yeah. so there are there were new media laws approved recently uh, in countries like venezuela Ecuador, but also more recently in argentina yeah. and Uruguay has just passed a new media law, and of course in Brazil has been debating uh, civil suicide groups have been trying to push for mm. uh, a shift in the regulatory sh- system for decades. The law that regulates radio and broadcasting in Brazil is from 1962, mm. so it's completely obsolete. Uh, and but n- every president has promised to <laughs> to offer you know to update it, <coughs> but it we're still waiting for you know any serious attempt to to change that law. So uh, that there has but in other latin american countries and i would say the argentinian law is it's a very good law Mm. um tries to promote diversity and pluralism especially in terms of uh, preventing high levels of media concentration uh its application however has been often more selective than you, you know uh uh than universal but you know uruguay has just recently passed a very Good media law, and I think there are some good, hopefully, some good examples coming from the region of media laws that will reconfigure the media sector in a way that will reinforce public interest obligations. Mm.
0: Uh, And the media reform movements are very vibrant, very significant. And I suppose civil society has become much much more important and for people who grew up under dictatorships as you did yes the idea that government is the way out is always Mm -hmm. going to be a little bit problematic isn't it yes so there is well in latin america it's
1: often there is this strong belief that the state has to be the solution or step in right
0: that is the tradition yeah
1: this tradition often uh, you know civil society has it 's a highly complex issue because, oh. on one hand, I would say that what's, there is a huge difference in the region in terms of the arrangements between civil society and the state. Mm-hmm. There are countries like Brazil and the southern Con countries, uh, including uruguay and especially and Chile, where the state is is more receptive and accommodating of civil society participation. Uh, in policymaking, right, and uh, so there are strong participatory institutions in Brazil uh, that
0: reflect that. And this is a southern st- cone where hundreds of thousands were slaughtered. Yes, by some of these dictatorships. Yes, maybe not hundreds of thousands. But, but the but new democratic but...
1: governments were able to engineer new yeah. institutions. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we can talk more about that. But in Brazil, there are there is the tradition of. The participatory budgeting, which is very strong in the municipal level in some cities, mm-hmm. but also the federal, the state level and the federal level, there is the whole tradition of national conferences and uh, managing councils, which include uh, civil society, the private sector, and, and government, uh, government officials. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it, 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 these participatory institutions have been. Played and in place. in, in, been placed for some time.
0: And this tripartite model. Right? Yes, uh, not always, but often yeah.
1: incorporating different sectors. And, mm. uh, uh, and in other countries, you know, civil society groups have been much more marginalized from state decision-making right. Uh, right. Than, than in Brazil. So there is a lot of variation. Mm. But one topic that I'm considering looking at more closely mm-hmm. is... The relationship between participatory and representative democracy in Latin America and uh, trying to understand the role of populism, forms of neo-populism, but also uh, new forms of state and civil society relation that are configured very differently across the
0: region. Sure. And whilst statism is something that runs heavily through the region, but in complex ways, so is populism. Yeah. And so is clientelism. Yes, and these are still tendencies that are there. Very well, All definitely of them, right. In
1: the in Brazil is an amazing Brazilian scholars have been coining a term that's very interesting, uh, which is a little bit complicated to foreigners to understand. But no. it's the notion of electronic colonialism. You know, colonialism has been a term used by political scientists to uh, understand the powerful local bosses in Brazilian regional politics, and how uh, landowners, especially, were able to exert extreme, extremely strong power mm-hmm. uh, in regions of the country in alliance with state and federal authorities. So it was basically a pact where the federal mm-hmm. government would allow these colonels, the strongmen, to rule as they will in their regions of control in exchange of political support. So that has been a trend for centuries in Brazil. So what happened, of course, in, when Brazil becomes more urbanized and industrialized in the mid-20th century, is that land, of course, remains a strong source of power, but more and more control of media became essential to local elites yeah. to exercise the power. So in Brazil... Uh, People have been coining the term electronic colonialism to address the issue of the fact that in several states, especially in the less developed ones, uh, there is a huge correlation between families that control local politics and the families that control the local media. So if you look at states like uh, Bahia, Maranhão, Alagoas, the same family that traditionally control the state politics is the same mm-hmm. family that owns the television stations that is um, affiliated to TV global. Mm-hmm. It's the same family that owns one of the first of the second largest newspaper in the state It's the same family that owns radio stations. So there is a, a huge correlation between oligarchic control of politics mm-hmm. and control of media in Brazil, which is very which Which suggests that presidents have used the power to allocate TV and radio licenses in a clientelistic way, yeah, so they have given uh, radio and TV stations to their friends, and they have effectively prevented their foes to have access to media and have uh, access to radio and TV licenses. So there's this very problematic and authoritarian aspect in the political system in Brazil, which is strongly based on
0: clientelism. When I was in language school in Guernavaca in 2001, I was in a house billeted with an oil executive and his wife. And at the end of the week we were there, they could only say hola and gracias, but they'd learned about clientelismo Mm -hmm. because when they and I were chatting and they described their experiences working for this Canadian oil firm in the Arab world, uh, I said, oh, well, you'll be very at home here because it'll be similarly clientelist. And
1: And they they were not familiar with it. No,
0: they'd never heard of this concept. I laid it out. Very much as you just have. The guy took notes. He said, "That's fantastic.
1: Yeah, And that is
0: what we do, and that's what we need to do more of." Yeah, but being fair, of course,
1: clientelism is also a common phenomenon in the North, right? So you bet. You uh, bet. No, leaving, having moved out of lived in Canada, better than Canada. Having lived more than ten years in the in the U.S. South, you know, I can attest to similarities <laughs> in Latin American politics to what goes on in the South. Or, of course, not to mention Italy and Southern Europe and other, where clientelism remains you know, an important political phenomenon, including to understand media. Um, yeah, so definitely it's, it's, an, it's an important concept to understand the relationship between media and
0: politics in Latin America. But it's also interesting in terms of any anthropological idea of reciprocity. Yes. Because, yes, it excludes many people, but it does have this reciprocity notion of a gift and what is given in return, or guanxi yeah. in China, in Putonghua, where these things do bind, bind us together, but they do apply all over the world. And in yeah, but many, uh, you're right. Also,
1: contexts. the scholars are often quick in dismissing yeah. clientelism as necessarily authoritarian and exclusive, uh, and doesn't have to but uh, you know, some scholarship has revisited uh, the notion of clientelism to show that it's not uh, it's not just a top-down political relationship. Mm. It's something where you know the subaltern groups that are trying, to, where the powerful are trying to co-opt through these arrangements, have their own ways of ensuring their interests so. through uh, clientelistic arrangements. So, and also, of course, often in the case of Latin America. Clientalism has been often one of the only ways to in- effectively incorporate groups that had been marginalized by the mainstream political system. So, um, so there is an interesting book by Carlos de la Torre, who is a, a colleague of mine, who is a brilliant scholar on populism in Latin America. And he argues that, you know, if you look at the cases of Venezuela, Ecuador, and Bolivia, You know, clientelism and populism are not only a top-down relationship that it's only about cooptation of the poor Mm. or the marginalized. Mm. It's often, you know, a result of pressure from below and effective concessions that have allowed some of these groups to achieve some gains that are Mm. real. They're not symbolic or delusional. They're Mm. real gains. and So there is... I think I need to be more careful when applying, revisit some revisiting some of these yeah, concepts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just that idea of reciprocity and collaboration mm-hmm. and the gift—these uh, are the bases of society. Yes. actually. Um, yeah. So, well, Maro, I want to thank you very much for oh, coming it has into been the pod. I've learned so much over the last three or four days here chatting to you both about your family and mm-hmm. about your work and about Latin America. And uh, this has been especially exciting. Thank uh, you very
1: much. I hope this is just the beginning of our permanent exchange of ideas and I uh, hope to see you back soon to New Orleans. That would be great, thanks so much. Okay.